Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. The views and opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording today's show, Wednesday, May the 12th, 2021. Eula Hall passed last Saturday at 93. She was a relentless advocate for healthcare in Appalachian, Kentucky. Against so many odds, she started the Mud Creek Clinic. Dr. Garrett Adams gave me a copy of that book a few years back. What a story. Thank you, Eula Hall, for all your work. And May is Mental Health Month. I don't think one month will do it justice. Seems like mental illness is challenging COVID as our national epidemic. Are you listening, Senator Dr. Rand Paul? A couple suggestions. One, listen to Two Nuts in a Pod here on Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. It's a great show discussing mental and emotional wellness. And the second suggestion is donate or volunteer with Forward Radio. Just go to forwardradio.org. You'll feel better for it. And nobody's wearing a tinfoil hat in this studio, Dr. Mike Flynn. Nope, Joe, I don't have one, so uh, we'll get move on. We are, first of all, let me do begin with the usual disclaimer that uh, any views that I express today <clears throat> represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. My views are my personal views and don't represent uh, Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky, nor the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So we have a special guest today, uh, George Nichols. Um, George is a uh, forensic pathologist, and I'm going to ask him to define that for our listeners who mostly are not a medical uh, folks uh, when he has a chance to, to make his opening remarks. Uh, George uh, went to medical school and did pathology residency at the University of Louisville, took a fellowship in forensic pathology. He was a state medical examiner for a number of years where he learned he earned the title of Dr. Death and currently runs a uh, consulting service. So, George, welcome. And we really appreciate your willingness to do this. Uh, what we've done uh, in the past is allowed uh, our, our guest speakers uh, uh, initially an opportunity to make whatever comments they'd like to make uh, about the, the topic, which in this case is, are going to be an assortment of, of, of medical legal issues, and uh, then we'll let the conversation begin. So uh, the floor is yours, and maybe you could just begin defining uh, a forensic pathologist uh, for our listeners? Well, pathology is the study of human disease and the body's reaction to that disease process. The pathologist is the doctor who examines the tissue biopsy that's taken from you 
or examines your pap smear. So that's what pathology is. And when it, it's the primary course in the second year of the four years of medical school, the purpose of which is to try and teach students about the biologic history and evolution of the human diseases. So when they see a patient, they don't know where in the, the evolution of that disease it is, but they must make an assessment of, of the, the condition of the patient and try to, to uh, make the proper diagnosis and institute effective therapy. So that's the purpose of pathology. The word forensic means law applied. Therefore, theoretically, <clears throat> anything having to do with the law and human disease is the purview of a forensic pathologist. In actuality, and in day-to-day -day practice, the vast amount of a forensic pathologist time is spent in an attempt to determine, if we can, how a person goes from alive to dead. To do that, we, we uh, use a, a large surgical procedure. It's called an autopsy. And those are performed in, uh, in autopsy suites. And the, uh, the, the main thing that's featured in, in an autopsy room uh, is one or more stainless steel tables or SSTs. And I've spent a great deal of time standing around SSTs, so much so that, that uh, the veins in my legs are no longer competent and I have to wear compression uh, socks to not slosh when I walk. How about you, surgeons? You're breaking my heart, George. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used to wear them when I did those long 13-hour procedures. I stopped when I started doing endocrine surgery in the last 10 years of my practice because most of those cases lasted anywhere from 20 minutes to two hours. Right. Well, an, an autopsy lasts anywhere from two hours to two hours. You know, I, <laughs> I remember those good old days when I was in pathology. Uh, Gene, do you want to begin the, uh, the, the discussion? Well, one of the things we're going to talk about is um, medical malpractice. And most physicians feel like that the medical malpractice in the United States is a huge issue. It's also an emotional issue. And of course, one of the reasons of this radio program is unipayer system and that we need to switch to some other type of system. And I want to ask George, if we switch to a system where everybody is covered and um, their, their medical bills are covered, what will that do to um, the medical malpractice situation in the United States? We won't have to sue someone in order to get money to pay care of their disability as a result of uh, medical malpractice. Well, I'm not too sure that it's going to change anything because uh, to, cha to change the litigation, it's going to require activities of, I hate to say it, the uh, state legislators. And we know how, how effective those guys are in thinking long-term and short-term. Uh, I dealt with the budgetary issues for my, my little portion of the, of the state of, of uh, uh, Kentucky for uh, 21 years, loved every second of testifying. And it, there was a, a guy who was in charge of the, uh, one of the budget committees, uh, I've forgotten whether it was House or Senate, absolutely hated me because he was a criminal defense attorney and I had been in trials where he was representing people who were found guilty. Now try and get some money out of that guy. So I don't think that the doctors can do anything 
it has to uh, because all medical negligence, like 99% of medical negligence uh, actions, occur in state courts. So it's going to require state activity. Uh, I, I'm a second generation doctor. My father was a family practitioner uh, near the near Shively, Kentucky. Um, I'm divorced from a doctor. I'm married to a doctor, and interestingly enough, the three sons that my second wife and I have, none of them ever wanted to be a doctor after seeing what it was like to be a doctor. So uh, I'm in it for the duration. I'm still working at least four hours a day and I'm still still doing some autopsies, although <clears throat> my the arthritis in my hands has made it uh, very unpleasant to uh, try and uh, perform the operation without inflicting painful injury on myself. So I don't think uh, that that the, the unipayer system is going to do much of anything uh, in terms of, of medical negligence. It's all going to be on the states. Now, Indiana reformed its uh, state uh, uh, its mal malpractice litigation 30 years ago, when amazingly enough, the governor was a doctor, and so they set up uh, a system by which. A complaint would be made, it would be referred to a board, and then the board would make a decision, yes or no, with medical medical uh, negligence uh, had been committed. Then that was challenged in court, and that's been changed, and now there's a way for uh, for the board, the board's decision to be sent directly to a circuit court for at least a, a hearing, if not a complete trial. So all, all the Indiana law has done, as near as I can tell, uh, is to slow down the already uh, slow procedure for all parties concerned. So that's, but that's the way, I, I, I don't know that a single payer system is going to deal, deal much with medical negligence. George, I've, I've had five children <clears throat> and nobody has any interest in going into medicine either. So uh, <laughs> I guess it's, uh, they, you know, what they see, they didn't want to do. Uh, let, let's go back a little bit into the medical liability issue. Um, where is it today? Is it up, down, or steady? I can't tell uh, since the uh, uh, since COVID occurred, um, because the number of, of for a long time the number of, of elective procedures uh, have, were not being performed at all. Uh, if it's a traumatic event, uh, there's not going to be much in in the way of of liability issues, almost all of the liability issues occur with the management of uh, elective dis uh, disorders by diagnostic procedures or uh, by therapeutic procedures. So, so those haven't been done. So I don't think right now uh, anybody can tell you how many cases are sitting out there that will occur in a delayed fashion because of the, the pandemic. Yeah. Now, I, um, as a surgeon, I've I've had about uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go through all the gory details. Probably been sued about five times. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of them were 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 disposed of by uh, by judges. Uh, one went to trial and one was settled. Um, the one that went to trial back in 2010. Uh, the plaintiffs had a, uh, quote, expert witness. This was a professional expert witness. He was an otolaryngologist from New York 
who had a had a the file was about six inches thick. His basically his main occupation was testifying in, in whatever kind of medical liability issue they asked him to testify in. Uh, you know, in, in my case, it had to do with uh, the treatment of hyperparathyroidism. He, I, I went through the file. He testified about, uh, you know, everything from hearing difficulties to tonsillectomies that went on and on and on and on. And the way the law was written, the way I understood it, all you had to be to be identified as an expert witness is have a, be a physician. Uh, and we all know that 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 you know the difference between somebody talking about the, the treatment of breast cancer, gynecological problems, or or whatever else has a lot more than just being a physician. Where where, where is the medical liability issue in terms of what I would define as a, you know an appropriate or a, a, you know a real expert witness as opposed to some guy who just decides to testify against any you know, whatever they want him to say. Well, I was surprised that the judge allowed him to, uh, to testify. Uh, Kentucky is a Daubert state. We accepted the Daubert standard in 1996 or 97. In fact, I, I taught the first course about the uh, Daubert to the, uh, to the judicial conference. That's uh, all the circuit and appellate court judges in, in the state of Kentucky. I think I taught that in, in uh, 97. And the Daubert standard is that is that you must be board certified uh, in the field in which you are uh, to give uh, testimony, as in your guy should not have been qualified to testify about something going on, going on in a toe since he was an ENT doctor. So then you, what if you have an opinion and you're going to express it in court, you must you must be able to cite a peer reviewed paper or more that will will back up your opinion if you. If you do not have a peer-reviewed paper, you will have flunked the Daubert test and your testimony will be withheld. Uh, I don't know if, if the Daubert motion was, was made in your trial or not, but uh, the, the judge should have uh, not allowed him to testify unless he had uh, peer-reviewed materials to say he was correct. Wow, this goes back to 2010. I don't remember... Uh, the, he was an otolaryngologist. He did one or two parathyroidectomies a year, as opposed to 50 or 60 that, you know, somebody who does a lot of parathyroid surgery would normally do. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was he was a board qualified otolaryngologist, to be fair. I doubt very much that he had a paper, peer reviewed paper about the the issue that he was testifying with in court. And um, uh, well, who knows? If, if we talk to trial lawyers, they're going to say, well, the cost of, uh, of a legal proceedings in uh, medicine compared to the entire cost of medicine is extremely small, less than 1%. The real issue, as I see, as far as the cost of medicine is defensive medicine. And, uh, we have doctors who, uh, including me, who order too many tests in order to defend themselves. And I see that as a, one of the biggest problems of the increased cost of uh, American medicine compared to medicine 
in the other uh, industrialized countries around the world. And how do you feel about that, George? Oh, I, I agree. I review lots and lots of medical records, and especially in teaching hospitals uh, and teaching programs. The, the, the practice of medicine is done by protocols. Nobody thinks about necessarily about what's going on with the patient, but there's a protocol. I have these few findings, and here's what I'm uh, here are the lab tests that I'm supposed to uh, to start out with. And you can pursue almost any laboratory test to the nth degree. You know, laboratory tests are meant to be 95% accurate. So if you do 20 tests, you you got you have a very good good chance of having one that's that is that is uh, a lab error. No one considers that, and they chase it. So they 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 spend a lot of money chasing something that's felonious in the, in the in the beginning. So too many. Too, I can't since I'm a lab guy, I can talk about the lab side. Uh, uh, the anatomic stuff, the, the, the biopsies are, are probably appropriate in, the, in their, their uses, whether it's on skin or gynecology or, or breast. Um, but from a, a clinical laboratory standpoint, there's clear overutilization, and I don't know how you control it. Uh, George, <clears throat> one of our earlier programs, we had uh, Mary Berry on. I don't know if you remember Mary. She was a uh, internist for many years in Louisville, retired. She she was my wife's physician. She was she was a great internist. She uh, was my she was my physician until until she retired. <laughs> okay. I used to drink I used to drink beer with her dad, who was a sports <laughs> writer for the, for the Louisville Times, and I knew Mary when she was a, she was a nurse at the Denville Hospital. <laughs> uh, okay, well, <laughs> I get back to the question. We, we had her on to talk about telemedicine. <clears throat> and as we talked, and I, you know, there were a whole number of, of what I would consider legitimate medical, you know, legal issues. So let me, let me, um, let me run some of those by you. First of all, the sort of medical license waiver issues where, where, these these organizations that do telemedicine may have a especially with the pandemic allowed a uh, you know somebody with a license in West Virginia to be giving advice in, in Kentucky uh, and, and uh, I mean I guess those things are going to go away when things tighten up after the after the pandemic the other issue was confidentiality I mean we're talking to you on Zoom. And, and Mary was doing the same thing with, uh, uh, you know, whoever she was giving medical advice to, or, you know, on, on, a, on a computer. Where, where do, what are the issues related to either or both of those um, aspects of telemedicine? Well, first of all, the, the act of the laying on of hands is abandoned when you're pixelated. And it's pretty much abandoned uh, with medical education these days. Yeah, the, the value of the physical examination is not not just uh, for reimbursement issues. It's you can learn things from touching people, hopefully with their permission. But you you can learn things, and sometimes sometimes um, physical examination you'll have you'll never get the story as old Dr. Roseman, the neurologist, used to say, the story's the story, go get the damn story. 
you start off getting the story by having your, uh, an intimate interview and by the, in instituting the process of doctor touching patient. That's gone. How do you how do you do this? Pixelated. I mean, I, I gave testimony yesterday in a, in a, a trial in Monmouth County, um, New Jersey, via Zoom, and I'm I'm going. This is the weirdest thing I've ever done. You know, I'm used to seeing I'm used to seeing uh, a jurors sitting right in front of me, and there were there were none. Invisible. All I saw was was I uh, iPad. That's it. So I think, and if, especially if, if the if the charges are less for Zoom medicine, the insurers will drive it that way, not for the betterment of of the patient or the betterment of the doctor, but for the betterment of the corporation and its shareholders. Oh, excuse me, and a CEO or two. Yeah, well, the other question, uh, which I remember asking Mary, and I don't think she had an answer, was what, you know, people make mistakes. So what happens when you give bad information um, in a telemedicine setting where you have only had an opportunity to talk with the patient or even just look at them through a computer <clears throat> and you may not get all the story you it's it's just it's just an interesting situation you you or if you have somebody who happens to be uh, doing the telemedicine thing who is basically incompetent or over their head in a particular situation you've got a, a, a you know a gynecologist giving advice about neurosurgery where where are all the medical liability implications of that? I, mean, I don't know how that's going to work out. If you had some thoughts about that, this may not be a fair question because it's it's such a new issue. Well, I've had some thoughts about it because you, the analogy you started with was a West Virginia doc taking care of a, a Kentucky person. Yeah. By, by Zoom. Now, and I told you that all the, that this is primarily state regulated uh, litigation. Right. Which state gets it? Is it the receiving patient's uh, uh, state who, who uh, files the practice? Do they file it in Kentucky? Do they have to file it in West Virginia? Well, that's because what I'm asking they, you. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because, because the West Virginia doctor's uh, uh, medical negligence uh, insurance is going to cover his activities, unless he has a special clause written in it, for his activities in West Virginia alone. Yeah. Now, he's still in West Virginia when he's doing medicine by zoom and pixel uh, to somebody in Kentucky or California, but where does, where does the, the, the act get filed? So, and there, you know, each these states have different, have different laws, portions of their medical negligence laws that are different from one from the other. So I'm, I'm baffled and I'm really glad I'm not a lawyer. Of course, I'm, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad about that every day. You wonder where all this is going to go, Gene. Well, uh, I want to bring up one of the other big issues is electronic medical records. Um, um, when I bring this up and for some young people around, uh, they'll say, well, you're just an old guy who doesn't know what he's doing and uh, (laughs) just doesn't know how to use the electronic medical records. And that partially is true. But I've noticed that they don't fit together. For, for example, uh, let's say we have an 85-year-old patient 
who has atrial fib and they go in and out uh, of atrial fib and the cardiologist doesn't want to use an anticoagulant because of the risk of him having a stroke or other problems. So if you push all the buttons at the end of the story, you got a patient that's got atrial fib who's not on Seralto and it's hard to figure out. Well, in the, in the old days, when we had a, a, a regular H&P, you dictate, well, this, this gentleman is had an intermittent atrial fib. He's not on anticoagulants because of the risk, and it would be very clear. There are multiple issues like that, and uh, I, I think that's uh, what you're feeling about how electronic medical records are going to affect uh, practicing medicine and, and, and uh, the legal issues. Well, there's a huge amount of redundancy in, in, the, in the electronic medical records where in, entire histories and physicals will be, will be repeated over and over again in a patient who may actually have a different story. But uh, it, it, uh, the, the, the other stuff, the baggage is, is still included, even for diseases that they no longer have because they've been eliminated. So I, I, the idea of electronic medical records was a good idea. So, I mean, I don't know about you doctors, but my handwriting has deteriorated, deteriorated like crazy. So my writing was awful. My typing is not much better, but it's, it's, it, it, it's correctable. And so just being able to effectively communicate on paper was difficult for doctors to do anyway. So this theoretically is better. It's basically easier to find results from, from laboratory testing, uh, radiographic testing, uh, and other evaluations. So it all is fairly compact until you repeat the same stuff over and over again, and you get to you know thousands of patients of paper. Excuse me, thousands of pages if you actually print the stuff out. It's good for those who uh, bill both for physician services and uh, uh, services in, uh, in, in other, in hospital systems. Um, beyond that, I'm not too sure it's the, the world's best way of doing things. Well, we, uh, what, what's happened with, um, as you've already mentioned, in this country, the electronic health records are focused mostly on billing, not on medical care. Uh, this is not true in other countries. And if you look at the complexity of electronic health records in the U.S. compared to some other countries. We had a Canadian surgeon on here from um, uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and their electronic health records are just a whole lot simpler because they have a single payer system up there and they don't have to navigate through this insanely complex system of, 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 of billing for thousands of for-profit insurance companies, each with twenty or thirty different plans, let's let's switch uh, switch horses a little bit here. Let's talk about informed consent. Uh, there was an article I was reading, if I can remember all the details, in one of these throwaway uh, thing magazines called General Surgery News. I don't know if you saw this, Gene, and it was a lawsuit in a state that I. And this is a month or two ago. I can't remember the, the where it was in which the the issue of informed consent um, 
there was a, the lawsuit focused around uh, informed consent and who was who should get it and uh, the and the issues that were 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 revolving around and the, and the article the 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 article the purpose of the article was raising the question of uh, and at, at the in the trial was whether the the surgeon was required as a the only as the person to get the informed consent for the operation as opposed to having a resident do it or a medical student or a nurse or someone else and that what what that meant because uh, i know at least in in uh, teaching hospitals and places like that residents and fellows often get it i get informed i had a procedure done at at that uh at U of L Hospital a couple of months ago, and the fellow got the informed consent, not the not the cardiologist who did it. So, where you've got some, I don't know if you're familiar with that, or what your thoughts are about, uh, you know, who does who's who who's legitimately appropriate to to get the informed consent, or is this something that? has to be done by the, the, the operating surgeon or the surgeon in charge? Well, I have some thoughts about it. Uh, I mean, theoretically, it should be done by whoever's in charge. That's no so I said theoretically. But that's not, not necessarily possible because of the, it would require the physical presence of, of the operator at a time where the operator could not be there because perhaps the operator is in another operating room operating on, on somebody else. <laughs> and you can't just say, excuse me, I have to break scrub, go out and ex explain this uh, and, and get a, con a consent form signed. So that is physically impossible at times. Uh, probably the fellow, if there is a fellow or a senior resident would, would be the person I would, I would think should be in charge of it. But again, especially if it's, uh, if it's these are surgical people, they could be, they could be in an operating room in another, in another hospital. Uh, <laughs> doing what they're supposed to do, which is to take stuff out and put things back in. So uh, it usually is going to fall to a nurse. The analogy that I do is uh, for an autopsy to, uh, to be authorized requires consent from the next of kin. If it's done, if it's done in a hospital, then the, the, uh, the, the nurse who is in charge of the removal of the dead body to the morgue is the one who is in charge of getting the consent. So she at least knows the knows the, the family, knows about the, the dead person and gets the consent, the consent. Now, how much she knows about what an autopsy is is a whole nother question. But if it's a four, if it's a four o'clock in the morning death and I'm at home, I really don't want to drive in to try and get consent from a from a grieving family that I don't know. So that's that's how it works for pathologists. Well, the other issue that the uh, that this article brought up was the implication in in clinical research that if if a surgeon is the the is the person responsible for getting the informed consent as opposed to a resident or a fellow, uh, most of the clinic I've been on the IRB at U of L for fifteen years now. Most of the clinical research uh, that that's done. Um, the consent is not obtained necessarily by the principal investigator. 
they have research associates and people like that who will sit down with the family. These informed consents are 25 or 30 pages long, and, and they go through all the stuff and answer all the questions. And if there are any questions that they can't answer, then they, they, the, the principal investigator would come in. Uh, you know, the, the, this would, this, the machinery of doing clinical research would, would really be gummed up if the principal investigator, who is, could be a busy medical oncologist, a surgeon, somebody in infectious disease, would have to spend all their time going through these detailed informed consents. So I'm not sure if this is a fair question to ask you, but I, I you know, whether you've got any thoughts about about the issue of getting informed consent in a study that would involve well any any of these these uh, these COVID studies for the vaccines. I mean, I, I don't think the informed consents of the for the Pfizer the millions of people or the hundreds the the, the first the first Pfizer um, third uh, phase three trial had had three thirty thousand patients in it. I doubt very much if the principal investigators were getting the informed consents to do that for that randomized randomized trial. So I mean, what, what are your thoughts? I don't want to be babbling on here for hours, but what are your thoughts about well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the primary investigator was was not physically involved in uh, in uh, going through the, the, the consents. But uh, but whether it's a, a, a lay person who is, works as a, a as a data gatherer for uh, for the primary researcher, whether it's once again a nurse who's there again uh, to uh, uh, to obtain uh, the the consent form, somebody's got to do it, and and it would not be expected to be the primary researcher. Well, one of the things that's bothered me is the lack of accountability by some plaintiffs' attorneys. Let me just give you an example. I got sued once. I was uh, I had a patient that had a lipoma on his back, and we took him to the operating room, and physical examination pre-op was normal, and we hooked him up to the monitor, and he had atrial fib. Uh, we took out the lipoma under local, and then I went back and told his wife and the patient that he had atrial fib and called his family doctor, and we referred him to a cardiologist. Well, uh, he sued me for, for causing him to have atrial fib. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this went on for two or three years. I mean, uh, you don't have to be really smart to figure out that I didn't cause atrial fib, but it looks like the attorney should, uh, uh, should have some accountability in uh, uh, just saying, well, we're sorry we filed this suit and we're dropping it. Gene, Gene. Did anybody ask him whether he drank a, a, a liter or a fifth of bourbon every day that induced his atrial fibrillation? <laughs> I, I know you're I know you're in a dry county, but things happen. No, it's wet now. Oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> you need to come down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've got a cabin on the lake and a boat. We'll have a good time. <laughs> yeah, 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 actually, I, I've stayed in the cabin. There are more dead animals hanging on the walls or hanging off the ceiling than I've seen in any 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 place in my life. Uh, let me tell you another. I, Jay, I got a better story than you have. About, okay. About, <laughs> about yeah, I know what this no, is. No, no, I, 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 this was probably 15 years ago. I. I I saw a woman um, in the office who had a goiter 
And I, I examined her, looked at the ultrasound and, and talked with her about it. She was totally asymptomatic. And I, I advised her that, in my opinion, I, she really wasn't a candidate for surgery because it was her thyroid was maybe, oh, I don't know, 70% bigger than a normal thyroid. And, and you really, she was a moderately heavy lady and you couldn't, you couldn't, she didn't have a big football sized goiter in her neck. So she went back to a town in uh, Indiana where she was operated on by uh, someone else. And during the course of the procedure, they damaged her recurrent laryngeal nerve that goes to her vocal cords and they sued me. And <laughs> so I, I went, we, I went up to, went up to the, we did this, we went up with the, um, the, the defense attorney and I went up there and we took a deposition and the, the, um, the, the premise was that since I was a head and neck surgeon, that I should have operated on her uh, because I had more experience doing the surgery than the person had operated on her. And if I'd operated on her, 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 her nerve wouldn't have been damaged. <clears throat> I mean, the judge threw that out, but I mean, if you, you try to think your amount, the, 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 the distorted logic of that is just this mind. It's, it's almost the same as <laughs> well, your, your atrial fibrillation thing. That's just like some of the stuff that's going on in Congress today. No. That makes no sense <laughs> yeah. at all. I, I want to change the subject just a minute. I want to go uh, talk a little bit about the corner system. Uh, Kentucky's got a corner system that's a, each corner's a, a constitutional office. Um, do you think that's a good system for the state or? Of course know, it's, of course it's not. Okay. I came, I came back here as the first chief medical examiner. So I was the first forensic pathologist in the state. I looked around and I said, well, there aren't any others. Why not? And I found out that there was no support system for, for them anyway. This is all. This is a big state. It doesn't seem like one, but east-west, it's a long way from Pikeville to Paducah. So you're going to have to have some, somebody authorized as an investigator other than the cops. They can work with the cops, but you have to have an independent evaluation simply because sometimes things happen at, during arrest and at the hands of police officers. So it has to be somebody other than the cops. When I, rewrote, when I wrote the coroner medical examiner statute, I think 78, um, I, there are several things that I did not include in there. I listed 14 things under which a, uh, uh, an autopsy would, uh, would be uh, uh, authorized. Uh, but the, I did not have means to, to replace uh, the, uh, to place enough forensic pathologist in facilities that didn't exist either. You have to understand, 2% of physicians are pathologists. 2% of pathologists are forensic pathologists. So we are rare. It's also, I think, the only specialty I know where you take more training to make less money because you're primarily a governmental worker. Uh, that's, that's why I always had a moonlighting job, one or more, uh, in uh, doing laboratory medicine. Uh, Governor Brown's- George, uh, you're, you're, you're breaking my heart, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gov Governor Brown said to me, he said, well, what, what is this, this uh, lab do? And I said, it does stuff on live people. Governor, for you, I do things on dead people. He said, okay, I understand. So <laughs> that, was, that was okay. But there, there, the maximum number of forensic pathologists we've had uh, 
working at the same time in the state of Kentucky, if by my count, is, was, was nine. There were functioning offices in uh, Northern Kentucky, uh, in Madisonville, Kentucky, in Madisonville, because that's where the roads all crossed, uh, in Lexington at the university, uh, and uh, uh, in Louisville also at the university. Uh, there, I was never able to get an, the fifth office that was necessary, should be necessary in southeastern Kentucky, home of much violence and and uh, many drug overdoses. Uh, and London is where the roads also would would meet. But I can't. There's no way that that the the medical examiner can be in two spots at the same time. And as I said, it's a long way from Pikeville to to Paducah. You would have to have a hybrid system. In which, uh, in which medical examiner investigators placed locally uh, would replace the scene investigations done by the coroner. Good luck getting the money for that. The coroner's offices are supported by, by a county government as opposed to the, the medical examiner's office that would have to be supported by state government and trying to squeeze Nichols out of, sorry, Nichols, uh, out of... Uh, of the Commonwealth of Kentucky's treasury is extremely dis difficult and frustrating. So no, the coroner's office, I've railed a, 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 about for a long time, there was a headline in the, the Louisville paper uh, if, uh, about 19, uh, 1978 when I was trying to get that law passed. You know, it said, if you want to kill your wife, do it in Kentucky, George Nichols. So <laughs> it's improved because we now make everybody at least get trained and, and pass a certifying exam, although a fifth grader could pass the exam. Uh, is there a conflict of interest for an undertaker to be a coroner? Well, theoretically, yes. Notice how I said theoretically. But if, you're, if you, you have to have access to certain things, and I don't have to tell you, you're, you're in a small town and surrounded by rural communities. You know, you have to have a place to put a dead body. If you're if you're if you have a hospital, does the hospital actually have a morgue that's functional that you can put the body in to, to examine it, just to take photographs, do fingerprints and stuff like that? There's always going to be a funeral home with an embalming room where the similar type of examinations can can occur. And before we had EMS services, the uh, the the undertakers actually ran the ambulance services in, in rural Kentucky. So they've been, they're helpful, but it is a, at least a potential conflict of interest. I have worked with many coroners uh, and deputy coroners who are funeral directors, many of whom do a great job, some of whom do a moderate job, and some of whom do a lousy job. I couldn't remove them. I remember the days when the funeral homes <clears throat> ran the ambulance services and there was a big wreck. Uh, each, if, if there were two funeral homes in town, they would each race out to the uh, wreck and um, <clears throat> the one that got there first would take the dead body and the other one would take, <laughs> would take the one that's alive. <laughs> All right, George, let's... <laughs> Let's change. Let's change horses again here. Make sure you don't put any fungal medicine on your horse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the opioid crisis. Uh, Purdue Pharma 
and the Sackler family. So, you know, this this organization uh, literally changed uh, the uh, a, a lot of the way medicine was handled. I guess it started back in the early 2000s or maybe even in the late 90s. It was late, late 90s. I yeah. know because I was still the medical examiner and that's 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 when I began to see the old drug. Right. And, and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the folks were uh, these, these uh, very skilled and attractive uh, uh, people were sent out as representatives of the, of of the, the uh, pharmaceutical company. They went to physicians offices as they, they, you know, they basically changed the vital signs. So your fifth vital sign became pain. And well, they, they didn't, that, that came from, from a, a letter to the editor in the uh, in the New England Journal. That's that's the source. Yeah, but it was driven. It was driven by this uh, this focus on providing uh, some pain medication that was supposedly not addictive. Yeah, it's going to be, which was it, not true. We're not supposed we're not supposed to have patients in pain. That's but they all drew upon not an article. But a letter to the editor yeah, about okay. about the additional vital sign that being pain status. And, and they're, they're smart. Listen, this family has marketed all sorts of stuff. As I recall, I think they were first in first in the the, uh, the benzodiazepines, and I think I think Valium was was one that that they pushed with with some regularity. And I'll use the word push because that's what they were doing. Remember, the Joint Commission also pushed this very heavily. We had to put signs in the ER that uh, uh, pain is a vital sign and you shall not be without pain. I know, but it was, uh, uh, I'm not, I know where they, they came from, but the, 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 the basic background force of this was driven by the opportunity to market and, and, and sell and get used this medication that turned out to be extremely addictive. So George, you know, from a medical legal standpoint, we're, we're, who's responsible? I mean, different, different organizations have sued the company, they've sued the family. I'm not exactly sure where all this, you know, where, where the dust is settling. Well, they've, they've also, we've also had many pharmacies who have been, who have been, found guilty of criminal act, activity by illegally dispensing the same controlled substance here that you're talking about. And, and I, in fact, testified in, in multiple trials involving uh, uh, prescription drug overdoses containing uh, always at least one opiate, if not more, by physicians who were, who were uh, uh, writing prescriptions left and right. Yeah. To, many, many of whom were, were not trained as, as pain physicians. I mean, one guy was a cardiologist. Why is he writing oxycodone? There was a town in West Virginia uh, where over a period of five or six years, a town of 400 that that literally that had dispensed over a billions of, of these opioid tablets. Correct. Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I gave a talk at Grand Rounds the year I ran before I retired. 
I, but you know, where, where is the, where, where does the response, you know, if you pick off a pharmacist here or pick off a, a physician there, I mean, these people deserve what they get, but you know, the fundamental issue was that this very powerful, very skilled family that was running a pharmaceutical company was, was using as much influence as they possibly could to get this thing into people. Correct. Where where is that now? I think they didn't they file for bankruptcy and they took a couple of billion dollars and put it in a Swiss bank account or something like that. Well, they they filed for bankruptcy and the, the bankruptcy judge was uh, was going to allow them to pay off uh, the the uh, um, the fines that they that, that they were going to, to pay by continuing to operate <laughs> the company, which was continuing to make oxycodone. <laughs> so, and that's a real good way of, of doing things. I don't think that, that any, that the, the Sackler family has lost a house, a car, um, a, a blood relative <laughs> as a result of, of uh, oxycodone distribution and sales. So and they are, they are not held. That family that owns that company is not being held in any way responsible for the damage that was done over these what twenty years of 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 over of of promoting the use of an opioid as a non-addictive substance. Well, the family at this point is still in litigation. The company is a went bankrupt. And the, but it was is still allowed to operate and pay off the, the debts that the company uh, uh, occurred, accrued as the result of deaths associated with oxycodone. The family is still in litigation, and they they are each individually billionaires. So, uh, you know, good luck to them. Well, I, I think uh, it's a combination of uh, things that that happened. Uh, I, I prescribed oxycodone, but it was always to patients who uh, had metastatic cancer to their bone or having severe pain. Or I never gave it to people with benign disease. And I think most physicians should have been aware of that. I think most physicians uh, should have known that it was an addicting drug. When Demerol came out, uh, it was advertised that it was not addicting. <laughs> so th this is not a new phenomenon. Well, yeah, but they didn't it, they didn't send out an army of, of, of drug salesmen to go to physicians right. offices and take people on cruises and have them meet in expensive restaurants and give talks and do things like and, that. But the other thing that bothers me is that we're still doing this. Uh, some things that I think are incorrect. For example, the, the pain scale. Um, I, I think that's grossly uh, inadequate. I've made rounds. Uh, I used to make rounds with a nurse who, uh, you know, she always asked the patient, uh, what's your pain scale this morning? And somebody would be sitting there eating breakfast bacon and eggs and and he would say oh it's an eight <laughs> i don't think i could eat breakfast without having that much pain and, and then we we still emphasize uh asking patients about pain if you if you go ask somebody specifically about a problem uh, most of the time they're going to exaggerate it um 
there are a few who won't. So I think we're still trying to say that pain is a vile sign. Pain is really a uh, objective uh, thing that um, uh, is different for different people. Well, I don't think it's objective at all. It's a subjective. I, I mean, feeling. A, yeah, yeah. A subjective. It's it's impossible to to scale pain. Just I mean, it's a, a falsehood to even think about using uh, uh, any type of, of objective scale for such a subjective finding all right george we're getting down to the last five let me say one other thing i do think that we're making progress i'm seeing more and more patients who are being treated with non-steroidals than with narcotics for pain and people are gradually being taken off of narcotics (laughs) okay Uh, george i was going to say we're getting down to the last five minutes uh what i there's a couple of issues around uh, medical liability activities. I, I kind of like to get your views about, you know, number one, it, it used to be true is that a bad result is not necessarily malpractice. And we all know, especially if you're a surgeon, things, you know, things happen and, and, you know, a bad result may occur not because of anything you did, but because of the um, the clinical uh, uh, situation that you are in, or the the status, the physical status of the individual you're operating on, is that a statement that that you know from your standpoint, uh, where you, you you sit in your medical liability consulting office, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hmm? I, I'm a I'm a causation expert. I am not a standard of care expert except in the rare case where, where it's, it is an issue that involves pathologist, pathology, or laboratories. So I'm rarely, if ever, a standard of care person. So I, I can tell you that if, if, if I do an autopsy and I find what I find is what I find, and if that, if that leads to litigation, then I'll, I will stand behind my, my findings, but only as, as causation, not for the standard of care for, for the surgeon in question. So I, that that leaves me way away from from, yeah, from okay. any, Not, any involvement there. And this next question may be just as <laughs> may, may be just as inappropriate to you, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because one of the discussions you know, everybody gets into when when one of these medical uh, when a lawsuit comes up is where sort of when do you settle, and when to you when to settle and when to fight or when to go to trial but going to trial has got some got some issues because you're dealing with uh, 12 or 14 people they usually 12 on a jury and two 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 uh, two extras or is it just easier to settle do you have any thoughts on that you you've spent as much time in a courtroom i guess as anybody that i know well i i've, te- I've testified in thousands of trials when I was the medical examiner, I, I averaged one trial per week for 20 years. Add those up. Oh. So, so I've been there a lot. You, the, the, my reference, of course, is, is, is biased because if you find out that Dr. Nichols, if you're, if, if you're the person who's being sued, Michael, and your lawyer has sent the case to Dr. Nichols to review, or I've performed an autopsy on it, and Dr. Nichols says, 
as a consultant to your attorney, settle. Then settle. Oh, I, I agree. I used to do, um, I did these reviews for, for both defense and for the plaintiffs. I did a number of these things for Larry Franklin. Late on, on many occasions, he I would I would there'd be a I'd be a box on my front porch that had looks about a thousand pages of stuff in there, and and uh, you know I, I'm assuming that I don't know what he did you know because I never found out but I I would give him an honest opinion about whether this was something that was uh, was 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 uh, in an appropriate activity or uh, action or. This was something that should have been settled, and I've I've done it in both ways, and I think that's really important. But I, I you know, there's there's a lot of emotional issues, a lot of emotional in there. So we're, we're George, we're about done here. Uh, I want to thank you for your willingness to come on. Uh, you're you're as much fun uh, on a Zoom <laughs> as you were as a resident i remember you 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 were part of a group of people who did some kind of show back back in in when in medical school it, it uh, uh, I, i'm trying to remember all the details but uh, i knew you guys weren't going to make it to broadway but it was enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> anyway thanks again we're about we're about done here we'll we'll talk, we'll t sign off and then we'll come back on and chat with you for a little bit <laughs> okay okay thanks again everybody for more information about kentuckians for single-payer health care you can go to kyhealthcare.org it's kyhealthcare.org for more information about wfmplp you can go to forwardradio.org thanks again everyone